This episode is sponsored by AES. The AES Corporation is a Fortune 500 global power company accelerating the future of energy. Together with its many stakeholders, AES is improving lives by delivering greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. To learn more, visit AES.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Google launches a circular economy accelerator, had a greenwash like a pro, a new effort to value nature-based markets, and how do you electrify a big rig truck? We're in for the long haul this week on 350. It's October 7th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, in all her fall colors, it's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hey, Joel. I'm actually clinging to spring. I have a springy top on today. I don't know why. Maybe well, it's, so it's been rainy. Okay. It's been rainy this week, and the temperature's been up and down. And yeah, it is autumn. And um, the, I see a little bit of color starting um and we'll see it should be interesting because it's been so dry it's actually been very dry here in new jersey which means the the colors will probably be a little bit earlier but we'll see we'll see how are you doing this week well we know it's fall here in california because it's sunny and and the hottest time of the year (laughs) so that's that's happening Mm -hmm. um i mean it's not it's not we had bigger heat waves but it's just beautiful uh, sunny days Mm -hmm. and still pretty warm uh, you know, all good. I had a kind of a fun week. Uh, we'll talk about it a little bit in the uh, week in review. But um, uh, one of my stories, uh, my column this week, kind of blew up a bit on on LinkedIn and Twitter, and uh, <laughs> on, uh, and it was my first ever attempt at satire or parody or something, but satire. Um, called had a greenwash like a pro we'll talk about that in a few minutes but that was sort of fun because i heard from a lot of people who don't generally write me and uh, and a lot of great comments mm-hmm. on linkedin and a few people very few but a few people who somehow missed that it said satire <laughs> obviously which was it appeared a couple times in the story and wrote and said wait isn't greenwash supposed to be a bad thing i don't understand but uh, <laughs> we straightened them out your editor so, advised you about that. I know that. You no, know, that was yes. your call, and it was a good call because <laughs> I was going to run it without the uh, the tongue implanted firmly in cheek um, <laughs> no, notation that said this was satire. So that was a good call out, and um, and we did it, and I think it it, it, it did help. But um, it just you know I don't know what it goes to show you, but uh, uh, it it. This that I guess you have to kind of when you when you do something that's a departure from what you usually do, and as I said, I don't generally, in fact, never have done satire. You kind of have to bring the audience along with you. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you for all of you who came along with me, and and if you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. It's I'll even say this myself. It's kind of fun, but you know what? We're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's now officially go into the weekend review. Thank you. 
Okay, so officially we can talk about your greenwash like a pro story now, Joel. Um, even yeah. though we've billboarded it quite extensively. I, yeah, this is um, one of these things that we struggle with all the time here at GreenBiz because we get pitched by so many companies with so many great commitments and so many great ideas that it's really hard sometimes to figure out what is real and what's not real. So my question though for you is what really inspired this column? Like we could have, you could have written this column probably years ago. <laughs> what what now in this moment inspired you to to take this, to take a run at this? You know, this is something I'd been thinking about for a while and I've written about greenwash uh, many, many, many times over the year. Um, in fact, uh, you know, I wrote a piece uh, a number of years ago called Who's the Biggest Greenwasher of Them All? Uh, which was actually uh, uh, saying, you know, who's, who's uh, you know, making claims and statements and pr professing that they're, that they're better now than they were last year and that they've got, you know, they're, they're promising to do the right stuff and not really doing that. And I said, well, it's actually consumers. Um, and so, you know, I've been taking this on from a lot of different angles. Um, uh, last year, last April in 2021, I wrote a piece called this greenwash, the new fake news, which means is, you know, it's a thing you just say when you don't really like something, you just call it greenwash. So, so greenwash has, you know, became a ubiquitous, uh, you know, when everything is greenwash, then, you know, nothing is greenwash or, or whatever. And so, I've been looking at this, but over the past year or so, greenwash has taken on a different flavor. First of all, it's 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 come into the realm of the ESG and and financial reporting uh, around uh, you know climate risk and things like that. And and all of a sudden in Europe, there's now actual definitions and there's regulations that, are, that use the word greenwash. Up until not that long ago, greenwash was mostly used by activists and just critics. Now it's actually a legal thing in Europe, um, and even in the uh, in, here in the U.S., the, the SEC is invoking that in some of their uh, uh, proposals and and commentary. And to your point, so much of what we get is like really that's worth you know that's really not all that impactful. And so companies are, have gotten really good at promoting themselves, but they're often promoting themselves for for really incremental things or celebrating incrementalism. And I just feel we needed to step back and take a look at what companies are doing that really isn't helpful. Well, what's interesting about this piece, Heather, is that I offer 12 tips. Uh, and, uh, and like I said, satire is tongue-in-cheek, and some of it's, I think, at least people tell me it's pretty funny. Um, I thought it was funny. <laughs> but, each, but each of these 12 tips, make bold commitments, tell a great story, use superlatives, ignore the critics, engage employees, things like that, they're all legit tips. It's the it's in the execution and the lack of integrity and authenticity and just care uh, that this becomes greenwash. So that was what I was trying to do here is just call out and hold a mirror up to people. And, you know, uh, you know, somebody said, uh, you know, this is going to, you know, piss people off in the best way, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and I think that's that's telling that people. And people said, thank you for holding a mirror up to us. So mm -hmm. anyway. Well, I, one of the things that I walked away from, w w walk, walked away from this piece was thinking about how 
greenwashing is very industry specific too and industry sector specific like i i think like something that could be oh i mean i don't know maybe you don't agree with me but i feel like the accountability so if you're holding the mirror up and if i as a journalist should be filtering for greenwash that i might have a different filter for the tech industry than i might have for the chemical industry than i might have for food and i think that that is also an, another thing to to kind of that, that 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 sort of jarred me and i was just i just thought wow not only just do we have to have this lens but we really have to have this lens and think about the different permutations of this for each industry sure. so um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, to your point, uh, you know, a lot of where, where greenwash is showing up these days, in, in at least in commentary and accusations, is in the uh, sustainable finance and ESG world. Right. And that's, in fact, what, what the right. regulations in Europe right. largely address. It's not claiming that something's recyclable when it really isn't. I mean, we have the, in the U.S., we have the FTC green guides, and they sort of deal with that, although I doubt they're very well enforced these days and, and um, you know, pretty weak tea. Uh, but... But yeah, no, these are industries specific, or they certainly have different flavors. And, um, you know, a chemical plant versus an apparel company versus a, a software company, um, you know, versus a car company. I mean, they're all going to be have different versions of this. So this was this was general. And, and uh, you know, and, and what's was also great is that, and I almost feel like I should do an update to this, it's, you know, in a week or two, that, that folks i said what did i miss and we've got i got at least a half a dozen maybe more solid other hmm. things beyond the 12 that i did you know i mean i didn't say anything about you know making you're just saying zero zero waste zero carbon zero <laughs> toxic right. zero right. net water you you know whatever it is and and that's another one that people want and there's a few others so i may i may do an uh, addendum to this at some point an update but um yeah, it was it was fun to do. But can we move on to yeah, absolutely. another story that's yeah. slightly more impactful? I think <laughs> um, uh, Google um, uh, in it, you know, continues its um, its commitment and initiatives to circular economy, uh, which is you know always struck me as sort of funny. I mean, Google's uh, obviously a software and some hardware company and information services company. Why are they thinking about circularity? Um, and I, I actually don't know the reason for this, other than, you know why they've leaned into this one so much, um, uh, but they have, and um, obviously they do have some issues. They have Nest, uh, the, you know, soft uh, the uh, thermostats and data and, centers, and other equipment, all their data centers, of course, data centers, yeah, yeah which, which mm -hmm. are constantly churning. So mm -hmm. they do have vested interest here, um, but they've launched an incubator uh, accelerator, um, uh, and this is the not the first accelerator Google's launched, but it's the first accelerator focusing on circular economy. They're going to pick 10 to 15 startups and NGOs, which is interesting, to participate for 10 weeks and give them access to, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of Google cloud credits and mentorship. It's I'm always a little, always a little sketchy when people say we're going to give you something worth of, you know, something that we, yeah. doesn't really cost us anything. But um uh, and then they have a demo day where the where each of the participants are going to pitch to uh, Google's VC network. I don't know anything about that network. I assume it's it's substantive and 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 significant. Um, but I think this is, you know, the whole idea of accelerators and incubators uh, has been growing in in 
climate tech for years. And, and I just think it's, it's really kudos to Kate Brandt and her team uh, at, Kate is the Chief Sustainability Officer at, uh, at, at Google and a good friend of GreenBiz, uh, you know, to her and the team for, for doing this. Uh, and she talked about some of this actually on stage uh, at our um, uh, Verge conference uh, three years ago. Uh, some of the seeds of this plan, but I, I just uh, I can't say enough good things about what Google is doing here. What was your takeaway mm-hmm. uh, from this effort? Yeah, I I feel like the, I mean I I would anticipate that probably where the majority of this stuff is going to show up is in information and in artificial intelligence and in software that they're going to. I, I see that. I, I believe that's probably where they're going to focus um, on the tools that that enable circularity that enable. Better traceability. Uh, there, you know, they, they, there's an example. Um, I think that they've already given, where they've they've added, you know, even internally, uh, re- information resources for recycling on, on their mapping and and search services. Like you can, they, you know, they're basically. I can see that. Maybe for, forget that they're. Don't forget that they're a huge information and artificial intelligence oh. company. So and they just launched on on Google Maps. Uh, not the fastest way to get from point A to point B, but the most uh, environmentally efficient way. Right, uh, right. Interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, it, if a lot of it focuses on traceability and sort of the things that um, that I geek out over. Um, I also, I want to give a shout out, just um, there's a bunch of mentors associated with this uh, this program, including our very own Suzuki. So, hey, oh, hey Suze, awesome. I did not awesome. know that. Yeah, and John Warner, um, you know, from Green, who, the founder Green of Green Chemistry. Yep, yeah. exactly. Um, Aaron Simon from WWF. You know, some some really uh, high profile um, individuals that will be part of the mentorship network. So I think you know, given given where Google's track record has been, I think uh, there was an interesting statistic in here. I actually had uh, Diana check it um, because they've had quite a few accelerator programs for everything. Right? They've had climate impact ones, but also like lots of other different programs, um, 19 of them in all, um, the, the participants in those programs have, have since then raised over $22 billion since oh. exen- attending wow. an accelerator program. Yeah, I know. I was like, wait, what? And, um, but yeah, I mean, they've, they've touched a lot of companies that have gone on to get a lot of, um, uh, venture backing. Now, I mean, can't say who's successful and who's not successful, but certainly they've, They've gone on to raise later stage money and yeah. and, um, and it'd be interesting on the NGOs, the NGOs uh, yeah. that they're going to be included in here. I'll be curious to see what kinds of 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 NGOs those are and what kinds of initiatives they're supporting. But you know, why not? Um, so um, yeah, you know this this needs to be replicated. I mean, somebody, and this is a little meta, and I don't mean the Facebook company. Um, needs to create uh, an accelerator for accelerators, basically, because we need dozens, if not hundreds of these in every topic that in the climate tech world and in sustainability in general. Um, and, and there's a lot of other companies could be doing this sort of thing. It would be great at some point if uh, Google actually did a workshop to, for other companies on how do you do this? What would it take? Um, and and maybe maybe we can even help make that happen. But speaking of big bucks, let's move over to our third story. 
on nature-based markets. Um, this is a new study from something called the Task Force on Nature Markets that says that nature-based markets, those are markets for nature-based services, voluntary carbon credits, things in ag, other other things could be worth more than $7 trillion a year, about 8 to almost 9% of the global GDP. Now, just to be confused, because I had to look at this a couple times, this is different from the, the the study that came out a couple of years ago from the World Economic Forum published that said that about $44 trillion, half, a little over half of, or pretty much half of global GDP is dependent, highly dependent on nature, uh, you know, client, having a healthy climate, pollination, uh, uh, erosion control, you know, just so many things that nature does, water quality, disease control, um, all the ecosystem services. That's a different exercise than saying this is actually the market, $7 trillion, the annual market of goods and services that can be sold uh, on, uh, you know, use around nature-based models. And, and they also think that it's it's kind of conservative. They set out a detailed taxonomy for what these, uh, and, and how the, the, the size of each of these uh, markets within this large market Um I think it's you know it's 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 sort of a high level view of things. It's not very actionable, but I do think it 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 sort of puts an exclamation point on the fact that this is real money now. These are growing markets uh, that you know for for offsets and sequestration and um, uh, and 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 a number of other things. And I I, I don't know if regenerative agriculture is here. Uh, but conservation projects in general, um, this is has been big business for a while, but not this big, $7 trillion a year. Mm-hmm. You know what is interesting to me about this? And, and I've seen there was we have another piece up on the site um, just on, you know, reminding everyone of the the need to start putting a value on nature in, in your own business and understanding what it means for your products and services and and what what's at risk and what's not at you know where where you're vulnerable um i i like these sorts of reports because they're i mean in this one in particular like because there's so much focus on carbon markets this could get get i think people finally understanding that there is a value and potentially doing something about it like this so i this one feels like a a a tipping point for me maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm being Pollyannish, but no, I like I, mean, I like that. I like that it's tied to these these voluntary carbon credits and these nature-based solutions, which are so top of mind for so many com- companies um, right now. So yeah. I like that. No, I mean, one you know, this is becoming a big topic: um, nature and climate and the economy. And and mm. and how does that play out within companies is really interesting. Uh, I'm working on a piece uh, that hopefully run in a, in a couple of weeks about a whole new generation of sustainability professionals inside companies uh, whose role is uh, focusing on nature and biodiversity. So Henkel and Procter and Gamble and Deloitte and the AXA, the insurance company, Salesforce, Meta, uh, Facebook company. Um, uh, now have positions specifically around climate and biodiversity or climate and, or nature and climate or, or something. And so they're recognizing that they need to be paying attention to this, that their livelihood 
um, and, and future growth or, or maybe just future is dependent upon ecosystem services and they have to uh, make sure that they're taking care of those um, because a lot of those things, extinctions and degradation um, and habitat destruction um, is, is going full force right now and the, and the changing climate is going to uh, probably do what humans haven't done, uh, which is, in other words, they're going to finish the job that humans have started by further decimating so many of these ecosystems and shifting breeding grounds and and just really roiling uh, a lot of these. Uh, what's been what's taken millions and of years to establish, and for which we've based our economy, that's going to start to change. So. Uh, yeah, this is a tipping point, Heather. I totally agree with you. Um, uh, and and uh, what's going to be interesting is to see, uh, you know, what do businesses do? How yeah. do they lean into this? And, uh, <laughs> it, you know, up to now, it's been, um, you know, this has been an, sort of an externality. It's 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 uh, the commons, and it's not our responsibility as a company to, 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 to pay for and take care of what everyone else should be paying for and taking care of. But that's changing. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's a really, really good thing. Well, Joel, I'm not going to let you have the last word on this one. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug the, the, the work that's going on in the technology community as well. Um, there's this whole movement of climate tech um, that's, that's focused on nature, on, on, on lots of different ways of not, not only using nature to address the climate crisis, uh, using ideas from nature like silkworms as a, as a substitute for, you know, pr- producing silk as a substitute for petroleum, bio, biotechnology companies, um, technologies to conserve and to protect nature. There's just so much going on right now. So I, I totally agree with you, like outside of, um, you know, there's this ver- this convergence happening. And of course, when we talk about convergence, we, we talk about verge, we have a, at our upcoming uh, conference uh, later in October, there is a whole forum uh, being uh, put together by Teresa Lieb, our our food analyst, um, who focused on this very issue. Um, and I just I'm like, and Google is at the center of that too, right? I, I, I think you know a little bit more about the details, but the forum, yeah. the Nature Forum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Nature Forum is actually the day before Verge starts. It's um, all, all pretty much all day uh, Monday the twenty. Fourth uh, of of October, um, yeah, it's bringing you know the idea is to how do you help companies embark on a nature positive trajectory, um, and so we're going to have a number of programs, and then uh, the whole group about a hundred people are going to go on a, a bus to uh, Mountain View to and take an ecology tour of Google's new Bayview campus. Um, and we're going to then have uh, a biodiversity-rich dinner um, there at Google's Vitality Lab. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, Google's a big part of this, and that's the second time they've come up in this. But, uh, yeah, if you want to, we'll, we'll link to the Verge Nature Forum page uh, on the GreenBiz site if you want to learn more. Electric vehicles have been on the rise in cities around the world as companies offer more models and consumers get comfortable with recharging. But what about trucks, semis, big rigs that crisscross the landscape? Where are they on the path to electrification? GreenViz transportation analyst Vartan Badalian wrote about that this week in his Transport Weekly newsletter, 
and he joins me now. Hey, Vartan. Good to be with you, Joel. So, uh, what's first of all, where are we in the in the state of the art of electrifying those big trucks? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of a complicated situation right now. More OEMs, automotive companies are releasing more heavy duty class three and up or class four and up vehicles all the way to class eight. Um, but we have a long way to go. I mean, uh, Bloomberg recently has published an analysis showing ultimately that even though we have made great progress in electrifying and releasing heavy duty uh, zero emission vehicles, the industry itself, the heavy duty vehicle class is not in anywhere uh, close to reaching net zero by 2050. Um, so we have a ways to go and uh, the market is trying to catch up to where it needs to be. Yeah. Well, this week uh, you wrote about uh, a new step-by-step uh, -step, uh, guide, I guess, uh, from the Environmental Defense Fund, EDF. They launched a Fleet Electrification Solution Center. Uh, talk a little bit about what that is and how that can help. Yeah. I mean, the way I wrote about it, um, it's to me, it seems like it's the official map if we were in an Indiana Jones movie and you were looking for that lost treasure. Because if you follow the tool from phases one to phase five, it shows that there is a clear guide to electrifying a class, what tools for is for class three-day vehicles. So it really breaks down each step that a fleet manager within a company should be looking at. Um, and it provides ultimately a guidance tool. And obviously it does not do everything that one person would need in terms of electrifying such a complex uh, fleet within a company but it's a good stepping stone and a good start to what a, a person should be looking at uh, when they're when they're trying to electrify their fleet. So what are we talking about here? Are we talking about uh, retrofitting an, a, a diesel-powered truck, or are we talking about a whole new engine or a whole new vehicle? What, what's involved with electrifying a big rig truck? Yeah, I mean, there are companies right now that are offering solutions to retrofit existing vehicles for companies, but where the the excitement is and where companies are majority looking at is just swapping out vehicles, taking your fleet of diesel engine vehicles and converting them or just replacing them with an electric or in zero emission vehicle solution. Um, and like I mentioned, there are OEMs coming out with vehicles now which can serve certain weight class and certain company needs. But we have, a, we have a ways to go, but that is where many companies are looking at. How can they swap their vehicles right now? And that's what the tool also mentions in one of the phases is starting small, start with a pilot, figure out what's going right and what's going wrong, and then go back to the beginning and redesign what you've already kind of figured out for your pilot, and then scale further um, to really increase the vehicle fleet that is electric in your company. So how does this pencil out? Because uh, I remember talking to UPS and they said that their vehicles are 30-year lifespan. And so that's uh, taking a going to take a long time to turn over their fleet, hundreds of thousands of, of vehicles. Um, does this make economic sense um, or is this still a stretch of the way that consumer vehicles are, are still, you know, may not pencil out in terms of gas savings? How does that work for a, a commercial vehicle? Yeah, you're right in that there is a certain lifespan or a life cycle that many fleets look at and want to have their vehicles within their fleet. Uh, typically, that's anywhere from five five years to six years for some light-duty vehicles, up in the upwards of 30 years for more heavy-duty vehicles, as you just mentioned. Um, 
it all comes down to time and right and the moment is now ultimately and that's what we keep hearing every single time we talk about climate and climate action right but it could not matter more and could not mean more than what it means for the fleet industry overall and, and corporate fleets um if you were looking to reach any meaningful net zero target uh by, by 2040 to 2050 you really need and you have class 38 vehicles you really need to start looking aggressively at uh, what vehicles you can change now to electric and where you can prioritize the road ahead in two to three to five years out in the future because it takes time and you're not and no company is going to allow any kind of sunk asset to just go to waste because in, in the name of climate there has to be an economic reason to, to convert to electric um and you have to start prioritizing and building your roadmap for electrification for your entire fleet now so that when the moment comes to turn over the vehicle you don't just fall into the same kind of cycle of procuring another diesel vehicle and you have a plan in place to procure an electric vehicle. Are there financial incentives? Does the federal government or state governments uh, offer uh, incentives to switch? Yeah, so we're in a historic time right now. So the recent passing of the Inflation Reduction Act has brought about uh, an, addition, an additional incentive for commercial uh, companies and commercial EVs. So there is now a up to 30% uh, tax credit on the sale price of a uh, commercial vehicle. And that differentiates based on the class of the vehicle. But this is a historic moment where companies now can get a, an additional boost and financial help to procure electric and zero emission vehicles. Um, and this is definitely added to what was already kind of in terms of support for companies. Um, the IIJA, which passed over the summer federally, is helping to support to build out a federal EV charging corridor, which 30% for the financial resource to procure a vehicle combined with the federal government and states building out a national network of EV chargers really should create this kind of future that we all want to see in the next few years ahead, where we see more companies and more electrification happening all across the United States and world. Well, lots more to come on this as electric trucks are on the move. Uh, we'll we'll see how this uh, looks in the next uh, the next months and years. Uh, but lots more to come. Vartan Badalian is transportation analyst here at GreenBiz. Thanks, Vartan. Thank you, Joel. The WSLA Alumni Group recognized 11 women at the forefront of the sustainability profession. These leaders have made a difference by advancing new technologies or strategies, by overcoming personal and professional obstacles, and by committing to mentoring other women. They joined more than 85 women who have been honored since 2014. I'm thrilled to introduce some of the latest inductees here on GreenBiz 350. This week, I'm joined by Famida Bongert, the former Vice President of Sustainability and Innovation for IT Renew, a pioneer in circular economy practices for the technology industry. Prior to that role, she led sustainability strategy in higher education for 15 years, most of that during her directorship at Stanford University. Famida is now Senior Director and Head of ESG for Intuitive Surgical, and I'm sure she'll tell us a little bit more about that company in a moment. Meanwhile, I'd uh, just like to say hi, Famida. Thank you for joining us here on uh, the, the podcast. Thank you for having me, Heather. So good to hear your voice and hello, everyone. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, I'm going to start with something I've been asking everyone, which is what inspired you to focus on a career related to environmental sustainability or ESG? 
I was very uh, inspired about two decades ago uh, when I found myself in the middle of a presentation uh, for a high-tech company talking to about uh, 350 folks in the attendance talking about software. And I found myself having this moment in an inner dialogue, almost an out-of-body experience mm -hmm. where my inner voice said, the things that I've become good at in my career had nothing to do with things that I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was really a, a point of realization. I've always been passionate about the topics of <clears throat> environmental sustainability, environmental protection. Um, I was born and brought up from part of the world where flooding and, and uh, you know, climate-related uh, disasters were very common on an annual mm -hmm. basis. And I always wanted to uh, work a little bit more closely on those topics in my career. But it was not until I had a few years of work experience in other related topics and industries that I realized that the work skills and passion skills are off-grid for many, and that in my career, I had to combine them. So <laughs> that was my point of inspiration. Um, is just realizing that I had certain skill sets, you know, analytical presentation, leadership, project management, et cetera, but that I really had to apply them for a topic that I really cared about. And that, that, that was my point of um, inspiration and decision-making back in 2002 to uh, create a career around environmental sustainability and never stopped since. So it does sound like you've reinvented yourself several times, you know, very different roles. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's, you know, a, a career journey is nonlinear, uh, just like life. And uh, there is a confluence of, of decisions and understanding and how one wants to apply herself um, in that and, and, and want to make a contribution. So I did find myself uh, several points along the way ever since I started, you know, ever since I joined the workforce about 25 years ago, to do that reinvention, to do that recreation, to align uh, what the world needs to what I had to offer. Um, so it happened once when I went from tech into sustainability, went back to graduate school, uh, worked on how institutions can decarbonize, and that's what really started my higher education career. And then I had another point of change uh, right around uh, as we were in the in the middle of pandemic and had had many of us uh, kind of did a double take on where we are in life and how we wanted to work. Um, that's when I realized that the, the work that was happening in private sector, particularly in the technology sector, uh, a lot of advanced sustainability work was ahead and I was inspired to join that mission. And I would say a, a few months ago, I did uh, another realignment, so to speak, where I've now joined the dual mission of sustainability uh, and, and patient care and aligned that with planet care, uh, which is why I was very inspired to join Intuitive Surgical as mm -hmm. their head of ESG. Cool. Well, I'm sure we'll hear more about that role in the future. And that's not the point of this <laughs> particular interview. Um, but going back to your career trajectory, what do you believe has been the most important factor in your success? I am always curious, um, always learning, and uh, always putting the mission in the front. 
Um, the work is not so much about me, but rather what I can bring to the table along with others to move, to, to propel it forward, to further the cause, to advance the mission. So I think that has been uh, very important because it, it resonates with, with people. Um, it resonates with teammates and it's, uh, it's always a, a steady source of inspiration which we all need, <laughs> both on good days as well as uh, difficult days when there are so many competing priorities. So it's really the drive and the motivation um, that, that I put uh, front and, and center. The, the other companion piece I think has helped uh, me and my team to be successful is a data-driven approach. When many things are unclear on how to proceed or how to organize an effort or initiative, um, data is, is a neutral topic and, and being able to center around that gives a level of clarity and conviction that are really, really important for new initiatives, also to mature um, existing initiatives and take it to fruition. What do you think has been your most successful leadership habit or strategy? Um, taking the long view in bit size sprints. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, it's essentially a series of sprints in a long marathon mm -hmm. and conserving both the intellectual stamina and the physical stamina around it, uh, because otherwise it's straight out burnout, right? Initiative leaders often, um, Sprinting is easy, but sprinting in pace in order to, uh, to finish the marathon is actually where it takes a lot of uh, strategy, some planning, some deliberation, knowing when to go fast, when, it, when to actually purposefully slow down, and, and really riding the momentum. So I think in my leadership strategy over time, uh, learning from uh, the very best in the industry and in multiple industries, actually, as well as observing my own instincts, it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of conserving the initiative energy as well as when to use that energy to propel that forward over a long period of time. So you're running a series of sprints and a marathon has been uh, the, the choreography that I've, uh, I've really tried to focus on and also teach others. That's great. So speaking of teaching, how has mentoring the next generation of leadership changed your own career trajectory or outlook? Yeah, it's, it's been, you know, it's actually mentoring others have been the, the main source. I would say in my early years of my career, I relied very heavily on being uh, mentored by others. As I was gaining experience and trying new initiatives and gaining success and bringing success to the organizations or companies that I served, then learning from others have really become the primary source of both motivation uh, as well as success. So mentoring others uh, gives insight into uh, how, the, how the work is uh, arriving with others. Um, it really helps with listening and understanding, um, understanding the needs of others. Um, and again, in that leadership style, um, being able to meet people where they're at, therefore designing programs based on where the companies are at. 
striking that balance between what's practical today, but also inspirational tomorrow. Um, it really helps through mentoring that understanding of that balance uh, develops because without having that balance, long-term success also is, is not really achievable. What advice would you give to anyone of any age pursuing a career in sustainability and probably corporate sustainability primarily, but you know, what advice would you give anyone? Um, it's a, it's a topic I thought of because I, I do serve as a guest lecturer on this topic of sustainability careers for Stanford university seasonally. And to me, three things stand out. First is while it is great to be able to major in a sustainability related field, we are in this decade of climate action. We may or may not have time for it, in which case the, the simplest and the most effective alignment an early career person could do is align their passion to whichever field they're working in and understanding how that ties to sustainability and ESG. Uh, so, you know, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? So I always try to teach, no matter where you are, align yourself to the mission and what it means for sustainability. That way, whether you have a degree in sustainability or not, you can still be a sustainability agent. So that's one. Um, the other is to truly remain very, very curious and flexible uh, we are in the era of interdisciplinary work as well as interdisciplinary solution making, which is very important, particularly in sustainability and ESG. And ESG as a field is highly interdisciplinary. It's coming in from you know, corporate risk assessment, financial assessment, facilities management, social responsibility, diversity and equity, the governance of, of all of it, reporting, transparency, you name it, this is a confluence of so many broad topics that really uh, the best mind is that of a design mind, of an interdisciplinary mind who can put, uh, put interdisciplinary solutions together. Uh, that's what, what it requires. And the third thing I would say to anyone is, uh, you know, putting the mission first really does help. <laughs> Um, even, even when it seems like the work is not going anywhere or maybe too many obstacles on the way or the financial business case isn't there yet, uh, most barriers are overcome with a clear and persistent alignment to the mission of the company and how that aligns with the mission of sustainability and ESG. So to never to give up on the mission would be my final advice. Well, thank you for that advice. Thank you, Famida, for uh, joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Heather. Thank you so much for the invitation. Congratulations to everybody who uh, uh, are part of the WSLA cohort. We're constantly learning and uh, rowing in the same direction together. So really appreciate the invitation to speak with you today as well. You just heard from Famida Bongert, one of the Women in Sustainability Leadership Award winners for 2022. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you can find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. Also, check out our free weekly newsletters. There's seven of them, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. 
Just go to greenviz.com newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you, your comments, questions, tips, whatever you got, just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by AES. The AES Corporation is a Fortune 500 global power company accelerating the future of energy. Together with its many stakeholders, AES is improving lives by delivering greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. To learn more, visit AES.com.